Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys. I got to tell you all about this encounter I had the other day. I um, was just talking to this family, and all of a sudden, this little kid looked up at me, and this is what he said. He said, you talk funny. It wasn't the first time I'd heard such a thing, and it definitely won't be the last. You know, even though I grew up just like 70 miles away in little powderly Kentucky, it might as well be like half a world away, because a lot of times people have trouble understanding me. Um, I remember this one day in particular, I was preaching across town at our Melrose campus, and it was after the service, and everybody was coming through and shaking my hand, and I saw this one man come toward me with great intention, and it was like one of those things where you're kind of like, what, what is he going to say to me? You know, and I was like, okay, maybe he's going to just say, hi, I haven't met you before. You know, my name is Bob. Or maybe it was going to be the nice, polite, like, that was a very nice sermon. But instead, before he could even take a hold of my hand, he blurted out, where are you from? <laughs> and it was abundantly clear he had not heard a single word of my sermon because he could not get past my accent. Bless, right? Uh, before Jeremy and I moved here to Bowling Green, when we were in seminary, I worked for a logistics company that literally shipped things all around the world by land, by sea, by air. And guess what my job was? I was the receptionist, okay? And so I was literally the very first person anyone would talk to. And I can remember at times answering the phone in our New York office being on the other line and them just laughing for minutes at a time and then saying, we can't understand you. And I would, you know, quickly tell them, I can't really understand you and your thick accent either, okay? <laughs> but... I've just come to accept this as a reality for me, right? Like to some people, I am always going to talk funny. Now you might be wondering, like, Laura, why are you bringing this up? This is not a therapy session. You're right. I might need to go and talk this out with someone, but I promise I have a point. My point is this, you know, we as followers of Jesus, when people hear us talk sometimes, do you know what they think? They kind of think, you all talk funny, right? For people who maybe aren't immersed in the Christian culture, they hear us start to talk and it sounds a lot like gibberish or what I like to call Christianese, right? Because we use like all this big terminology at times like salvation and justification and sanctification. We talk about things like atonement and propitiation and eschatology. But not only that, we also bless our hearts, right? And we fellowship with one another. And we talk about seeing fruit in people. And we sing about being washed in the blood. And then we wring our hands about things like backsliding and, and slippery slopes. You know, it can kind of sound funny to people who are listening to us, who use totally adequate other English words to describe the same things, right? But truthfully, the way that, that we talk about following Jesus, sometimes it's not just confusing to people who maybe didn't grow up in the church. Sometimes the way we talk about following Jesus is confusing even to us. 
I grew up in the church, and I remember from a very young age um, hearing that I needed to invite Jesus into my heart. Have you all heard that, right? Yeah? If you grew up in the church, you heard that. Um, But not only did I hear that, a very well-intentioned teacher had me do this craft one time in which we cut out a heart, and it had a little door, and you opened it up, and guess what? Jesus was in there when you opened it up. Okay, and so in my young mind, I thought like this is what actually happens when we invite Jesus into our hearts. It's like I asked Jesus to come into my heart and it's like this little miniature version of Jesus opens up this little door and he goes inside and like there's a living room waiting for him or something. I don't know. But if I'm honest, it it kind of freaked me out. I wasn't so sure if I wanted to invite Jesus into my heart, okay? It got in the way. Sometimes we can talk funny, and it can kind of trip us up. It can actually get in the way of us experiencing the fullness of life with God as he intended it. And perhaps nowhere is this more true than the way that we, we, we talk about our relationship to, to faith. You know, we, we sometimes say things like, I have faith, or I got saved, or I have Jesus in my heart. We talk about our faith as if it were a possession, right? Like it's something we went and picked up from the store, like a piece of clothing or an article of of furniture or, or something else. You know, we say, I got it. It's mine, and so, you know, when we think about our faith in this way, it's kind of like this, this thing kind of almost outside of us, right? That we can kind of show off maybe. We got this faith and I can kind of like wear it around like a badge of honor. Or, you know, maybe we, we've got this faith and it's a way that I can manage my image or a way that I can manage my outward behavior Maybe, you know, we we now have this faith and because I feel like it is mine, then I can control it. You know, I can kind of decide if and how much I'm going to actually let it shape me because, again, it's mine. That's how I relate to it. Or maybe even because it is mine, I kind of feel like now I have the right to decide who else can or cannot have it. But here is the deal. Our faith is not a possession. Rather, our faith is a process that possesses us. We don't have it. We don't got it. It's got us. God is in the driver's seat. He is in control. And he wants to take us on this journey. This journey that is so much more than us making a one-time transaction where we acquire something for ourselves. A journey that is so much more than a journey that is, is the, a journey that is so much more than just like having something that can help us make ourselves better or, or look better to the world. It's a journey that is so much more than something that we can contain and control and contort for our own purposes and benefits. No, our God, he invites us to a journey that is a process, a process that that forms us along the way into his very image, and not just for ourselves, but for others' sake. 
Over the next few weeks, we are going to explore this journey that God desires to take us on through the stories of some ordinary people just like you and just like me, people we find in in the stories of the Bible like Esther and Jonah and Israel as a whole. But today we're going to start with the story of Moses. And oh, what a journey God took him on. I understand that I just said we were going to talk about ordinary people, and then I turned around and I started talking about Moses, and you might feel a little bit of a disconnect there, right? You said ordinary, Laura, but Moses is like this great leader, the hero of the Old Testament, one of the great heroes of the Bible as a whole. He's the person who parted the Red Sea and who God gave the Ten Commandments. He's the person um, that led God's people out of slavery right to the edge of the promised land. But let's remember, Moses did not start there. He wasn't just born this magnificent leader. Rather, this is who Moses became as he went on this journey with God. It is who he became as he allowed God to form him into his own image for the sake of others. Moses' journey, it began just like all of our journeys began. It began with an encounter. In the passage that was read for us earlier, Moses was in this unremarkable place. He was doing this unremarkable job on this unremarkable day. When all of a sudden, he experiences something that will change everything from that moment forward. At this point, he is hundreds of miles away from the gold and the glitz and the glamour of the palace of Egypt where he had been raised. Remember, you know, Moses, when he was born, he he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he didn't grow up like a, a, a slave, like all the other Hebrew people. Rather, he grew up as a son of royalty. However, all of that had abruptly changed one day when Moses went out. He sees this Egyptian guard who is beating a Hebrew slave, and his anger just boils over, and he commits murder. Now, he is living in the wilderness, in this place. He's living in this desolate desert, this place called Midian. If that wasn't humbling enough for someone who had grown up in the upper crust, kind of like at the center of civilization, he's sitting there and he's doing this job in this moment that no self-respecting Egyptian person would have ever even entertained taking on. He's a shepherd. And we don't exactly understand why the Egyptian people kind of despise this profession so much. We know it from the book of Genesis, like when when God's people originally came to Egypt, they gave them kind of like their own place to live because they were shepherds. But, you know, maybe it had something to do with shepherds smelling a whole lot like the company that they kept every day. Or maybe it was that they tended to sacrifice or, or, or kill Um, animals that the Egyptians worshipped. It's not fully clear to us. But regardless, it is a job that definitely put Moses kind of like on the fringe of society and at the bottom of the social ladder. Once a prince of Egypt living a life of luxury, now Moses is essentially a nobody in the middle of nowhere just trying to mind his own business. 
Moses was in this unremarkable place doing this unremarkable job on this unremarkable day. Who knows how many times he had taken his, his flock out this very direction to this place um, that's known as Horeb. And we have a picture there, uh, which simply means desert or mountain. <laughs> Nothing spectacular there, right, when you see it. He's probably gone by this place so many times. He's probably on autopilot. Do you all ever go on autopilot, like on these certain routes that you take every day? Like maybe it's your route to work or maybe it's your route here to church. And all of a sudden you're going along and something catches your eye and you're kind of like, when did that business go in there? Or around these parts, when did they start building that whole subdivision? Or, or, you know, like, when did that business close their doors? I remember um, just this past week, I was going Gary Farns Boulevard, I think is what it's called. And I got stopped at the light and I looked over and Salad Works was closed. I'm like, I wonder how long that's been. Apparently it's been a few months. Okay. <laughs> but I hadn't noticed that happens, right? When we're on autopilot. And so I imagine, you know, Moses is going along here on autopilot when all of a sudden this time something strange catches his eye. He sees this bush, this bush that is on fire, which like out in the middle of the desert with no one else around, like it would be interesting in and of itself, right? But somehow this bush is on fire, yet it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. And so let me ask you guys a question. I'm going to do a quick poll here, okay? How many of you guys, if you are out in nature and you see something this bizarre, how many of you, A, turn and run the other way, or B, move closer to investigate, okay? How many of you are A, you turn and run the other way? I'm, I'm A, y'all. I'm not going to lie. I'm going the other way. How many of you B? You're going to go closer to best? All right. We've got some brave people here today. I like it. Well, if you answer B, you are in good company because that is exactly what Moses does here. This is a direct quote in, in Exodus verse 3. It says, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And so he starts to take these steps toward the bush. And that's when it happens. He starts to hear a voice, Moses, Moses. All right, now, my people, all y'all just raised your hand. When the bush starts talking to you, do you turn and run away? I need to know, okay? Anybody? Anybody running? Okay, Porter's running now. I'm with you, Porter. I'd definitely be running at this point. But Moses doesn't run. He's with you guys that didn't raise your hand again. Um, instead, he says, here I am, <laughs> And God tells him, he says, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. I want us to pause right here for a second and notice something important about this encounter because it's true of all of our encounters with God. Who takes the initiative here? God does, right? God takes the initiative. He is the one who has gone out of his way to do this remarkable thing on this unremarkable day to get the attention of Moses. Remember, Moses didn't set out on a journey that day to go out and find God at this mountain. It, it's not like everyone said, like, if you want to find God, this is where you go. The book of Exodus, it mentions here that Horeb was known as the mountain of God, but that's because it's, it has the benefit of hindsight. 
nothing significant has happened here before. You can go back and read back through the book of Genesis. You're not going to find anything there. Rather, this place becomes known as the mountain of God because what is being, being experienced in this very moment between Moses and God? This dirt, this rock, if we go back to the picture for a second, that is not remarkable at all, suddenly becomes holy ground because Moses becomes aware that God is present in this place. Um, this past Saturday, I got, went out for a run, not yesterday, but the one before. And whenever I left the house, it was still dark outside, as it typically is when you have to do, because it's so hot, you have to get out before the sun goes up. And so uh, whenever I'm heading out that early, especially on my own, I'm just kind of like in my own head. The only thing I'm paying attention to is like making sure I don't trip over a rock or, or trip over a limb because I'm not coordinated, okay? Like one foot in front of the other is like all I can do there. But I'm running along and... Um, and I'm not paying attention, and I have no idea that the whole time that I am running, the sun is coming up behind me. And all of a sudden, I turned a corner, and this is what I saw. The picture does not do it justice, but it was like the sky was on fire. <laughs> and suddenly, it became this holy moment because it was like this reminder, like, I might be out here alone, but I'm not. God is here and he gave me this picture of his goodness. I couldn't help but to just like smile from ear to ear because it took me by surprise. But this is, this is what happens. Like the sky had been there all along, right? But I just hadn't noticed it. It was just waiting for me to wake up to it being there. That's kind of how it works. God, he always takes this initiative to seek us out in the midst of the ordinary and in the mundane. But the question is, like, will we notice, right? When we recognize that God is present, it becomes this holy moment. God takes the initiative. And then he takes it a step further than that. And he reveals something of who he is. He tells Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And all you be people who raised your hand earlier, this is when he gets afraid, okay? The Bible tells us like he hides his face because finally he's starting to get clued in to like just who he's dealing with here. He's heard stories about this God. This God who just said the word and made the world and everything in it. This God who had promised to make his people into a great nation. He, he finally recognizes, I am standing in the presence of a great power. And he hides his face. But in the midst of this encounter, God reveals something about himself that I'm not so sure that Moses really understood about him. God, as he continues to speak, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of the people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and, I'm, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This all-powerful God that he is hiding his face from, this all-powerful God that made Everything on the planet is also this God who cares deeply for his people. 
He's this God who, who has not only been patient enough and, and caring enough to listen to their cries, but now he's also this God who is ready to take action to set things right. He is a God who hasn't forgotten his promise, even though his people might have questioned over this 400-year span that they were enslaved. When we encounter God, it reveals something of who he is. You know, whether it's in nature like the burning bush or in the burning sunrise that I saw, whether it's in a person who shows up at just the right moment or speaks just the right words we need to hear at that instant, you know, whether it's when we're reading the Bible or singing a song or praying or even just reading some random book. You read random books all the time and encounter God, don't you, Karen? Well, you're in good company because uh, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, that's kind of how it happened for him. Um, he wasn't expecting it. In fact, he, he self-describes this, and maybe you can relate. He says that he had unwillingly gone to Bible study. Have any of you ever unwillingly gone to Bible study? I, I'll be honest. I have unwillingly gone to Bible study at times. And then whenever he got there, someone is reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. It sounds like a page turner, doesn't it? It's got to be a good one. And so they're just sitting there and they're just reading it. But somehow in the midst of him hearing those words read, he said he felt his heart strangely warmed. He encountered God in the midst of that. And this is what he said. He said he felt he did trust in Christ, Christ alone. Like he'd been kind of following God in his head and his outward actions for a whole, whole, whole lot of time. But on that night, somehow he experienced the warmth of God. And he began to experience God's goodness in his heart. When we encounter God, whenever and wherever that is, we have this opportunity to, to experience or, or to know just like not with our heads, but to kind of like experience in our lives more fully who he is. Along with Moses, we get to discover that he is not some impersonal deity that is distant for us as we often imagine him to be. We have this opportunity to experience that he is this God who is kind and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, that he is a God who is near to the brokenhearted and, and who saves those who are crushed in spirit, a God whose love moves him to action. In our encounters with God, he takes the initiative. He reveals something of who he is. And then finally, he invites us to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. After he tells Moses that he's going to save his people, he turns around and he says this. He says, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses, this ordinary person who is in hiding out in the middle of nowhere, is invited to play this significant part in this grand plan that God has. He's invited to be God's instrument in this moment to rescue his people. Because you see, God, he doesn't just seek us out and reveal something of himself to us so that we can kind of like hold on to it and keep it all to ourselves. So that we can go back to that possess, right? So that we can kind of have this mountaintop experience or this feel-good moment and then just like go back to our business as usual. 
No, all of our encounters with God are meant to transform us so that we can then join him in transforming the world around us. Because remember, our faith is not a possession. It's not something we keep to ourselves, but rather a process by which we are formed more into God's image for the sake of others. Now, Moses, he is more than a little reluctant to accept this invitation from God, right? He, in fact, spends the rest of this chapter in Exodus and all of the next chapter, like raising all his objections. I think there's like eight of them. He's like, who am I? Why are you choosing me, right? Or, uh, well, what will other people think if you use me as your instrument? Or I don't have the right qualifications or skills. He goes through all of it. And maybe all those sound familiar because you have used them with God, right? Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this, this kind of, it's really just a part of the journey. Oftentimes we encounter God and what is our first instinct? To resist him, right? So we'll, we'll spend some time talking through that. But God's simple answer to all of these objections is this, I will be with you. He says, you're not alone. God reminds Moses that he's the one that's in the driver's seat, right? He's the one taking him on this journey and that it is his power that will empower Moses and that empowers us to be a part of his work in the world. Moses would go on to be the instrument of God um, that God uses to, to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and take them to the promised land. But it all started with this encounter. And so today I want to invite you to encounter God. Um, encounter God at what appears to be a pretty unremarkable table here. You can probably go to Hobby Lobby and buy yourself one today, okay? Uh, to come and encounter him here in a meal that is just bread and juice that you can go and pick up at Kroger. <laughs> but every time we come and eat this meal together, Jesus takes the initiative. He comes and he meets with us at this place, in this meal, and it becomes holy ground for us. Not only that, as we eat and as we drink, he reveals something of himself to us as we remember how he in great love laid down his very life that we might experience full life with him here and now and forevermore. We get to literally taste and see that he is good. And then he invites us to, to take that, that goodness that we have received and to take it out and share it with our world. And so as we come to this holy ground here today, would you remember with me that on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread and he gave thanks to the Father. And then he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup and he once again gave thanks to the Father. And then he gave it to the disciples saying, Take, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink from it, do this in remembrance of me. As those who are assisting this morning come forward at this time, would you pray with me? Lord God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. 
by your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. Until that day, we feast at his heavenly banquet. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, we'll be receiving communion by intention, which means you'll come up, you'll take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive it. The altar is open if you'd like to to pause to pray. If you need communion, uh, gluten-free communion elements, they are available here. Um, All are welcome to come. As I said, this is the table that Jesus himself set for us. And so you don't need to be a member of this church to come and to partake. Um, And um, I'm trying to think there's something else. Oh, that's what it is. That's a little inkling in my mind. As you come, if you'd like to bring your tithes and offerings, the offering plates are available here. But would you come now to receive this gift of grace?